Hi, I'm Mary Worden, and this is Premier Health Now on Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. This is the week of May 3rd, 2021. Hi guys! It's no secret that it's been quite a roller coaster of a year, and now we're all pretty well versed in surviving a pandemic. Now, I I thought about what could I talk about today going into this episode. I could recap the long list of things that went wrong and the things that ended badly, or I thought today we could talk about the highlights. What were some of the best things that you did during the pandemic? Here are a few things that came to mind for me when I reflected over the last year. I wore less makeup, and that's coming from someone who wore makeup every single day. And I felt good about being in my own skin for the first time in maybe ever. I learned new things, and for the most part, YouTube was my classroom of endless tutorials, but sometimes it was just a call to my dad asking him about paint and primer and how to do certain things around the house. I did grocery pickups and deliveries for some family and friends who were at a higher risk for COVID than me. I found ways to express my creativity, I made signs that had funny sayings on them, I flipped furniture, I looked up recipes, and I actually cooked, and that's huge because I'm really bad at it. I created a dreamy outdoor workspace that doubles as a neighborhood watch post for my dogs, which is a very coveted position in the dog world. And don't tell my boss that I even temporarily dyed a little bit of the back of my hair pink because I've always wanted to have pink hair and I could do that for the first time because I was out of the office and I barely saw anyone and I got away with it. And the very best thing I did was slow down. I was able to breathe and see things more clearly. I focused on what was important to me. I adjusted my priorities. I connected with people in a new and different way that was somehow so much more meaningful than pre-pandemic times, and I unapologetically put myself first for a while. And isn't it funny how when we do that, we have so much more to give to others? It's a pretty common idea that we will never be the same after living through a pandemic. And how could we? Of course we won't. but. I hope some of your highlights of the best things that you did are the things that stay with you as we slowly head back towards a more normal time. To fill us in on all things COVID and give us an update on when we might see those normal times again, we welcome back Premier Health's Vice President of Quality and Safety, Dr. Roberto Colon. Hi, Dr. Colon. When the pandemic hit, many Americans turned to vitamins and supplements in hopes of boosting their immune systems, a very popular one in the mix being vitamin D. While it seems silly to think a vitamin could be a cure, what are your thoughts on if vitamin D can prevent or even treat COVID-19? So I think a lot of this needs to be clarified that vitamin D itself isn't necessarily a protective nutrient But what happens is patients who are deficient in vitamin D, who do not have enough vitamin D, have a higher susceptibility for viral infections, including COVID, 
and potentially having a more severe outcome. Oftentimes that could be related to the why people are having vitamin D deficiency. But that's actually what's been identified is that when there is deficiency, people are at an increased risk for having those complications. So it would stand to reason that replacing the deficiency is the protective mechanism. What has not been demonstrated is that giving people excessively high doses of vitamin D affords any more protection. So that means that if you have a normal level of vitamin D and you took more of a supplement, you would not be lowering your risk any further. If someone at home did not have blood work done and they were not aware of their vitamin D levels, would you recommend taking the supplement? And if so, what would the recommended dosage be? Well, the first thing that, I, that we want to make clear is that the supplementation varies from one individual to the other based on their normal dietary needs, their age, risk factors, and other medical problems. For the majority of our younger uh, individuals who have a normal diet where they have free access to dairy products and they do ingest a sufficient number of dairy products, their vitamin D levels are likely to be normal, particularly during our sunnier months. For older individuals whose diets may not be as, um, as complex and as complete, particularly during the winter months, we see a bit of a drop in vitamin D levels. And for those individuals, anywhere from four to 800 international units, which is usually one tablet of a calcium supplementation, is what would be recommended. There are some individuals who may have medical conditions where we may not want to be giving any additional vitamin D supplementation. And that's why it's very important that before you start any additional supplements, you discuss this with your healthcare provider. And another thing that intake was increased in many Americans was their alcohol consumption during the pandemic. Can you talk about how this can affect mental and physical health? Well, one of the misconceptions uh, about alcohol is that it has a positive effect on our psyche and our well-being. And that often has to do with the fact that most of the consumption of alcohol that people think about may be in social situations that are themselves enjoyable. You may be at a party, at a gathering with friends. But in fact, alcohol is a depressant. Excessive use of alcohol has been associated with a negative effect on the mood. So when we consume excess in alcohol, we are actually setting ourselves up for potentially more issues related to depression and poor um, coping mechanisms. The other thing that alcohol in excess can do is it can affect our sleep cycle, which can lead to sleep deprivation and further worsen any of those mood behaviors. And lastly, alcohol is going to be full of empty calories. It is going to lead to um, potential weight gain or reducing the intake of good calories, nutritious meals, or other intake of uh, foods that may actually be more nourishing. So it's very important to make sure that if we are consuming alcohol, we do it in a balanced way, in a limited way, and moderation as always is the key. And Dr. Colon, what are some tips for cutting back on alcohol? Well, the recommendation is always that we are trying to find ways of reducing that alcohol content. And uh, men should not be 
um, drinking any more than one to two drinks uh, of alcohol per day and women no more than about one uh, per day. Um, one of the things that we see in some individuals is because of the um, increased time at home, there is more of that flexibility to be able to reach in for some of those enjoyable beverages. So one of the things that we want to encourage people to do is find a substitute that is going to be able to give you the same enjoyment without necessarily the negative health risks associated with using alcohol in excess. When we're looking for ways to cut that alcohol is find out what's missing that could help us fulfill that gap. Um, and for many people, it may be that social connection. So there are other ways of being able to reach that social connection through social media, through being able to do some video conferencing uh, with loved ones and friends, trying to, to get back into some of those connections. Being physically active is another way to be able to occupy that time at home, finding things that are constructive, additional activities. And certainly if you find yourself not being able to reduce that intake, but you have that desire to cut back. If alcohol has become a problem in your life where it is having a negative impact in social activities, if it's gotten you in trouble with the law, um, these are markers where you may have an alcohol problem and you may need additional help. And we encourage you to talk to your healthcare provider about ways to be able to help you through any of those excessive situations of alcohol intake. Yes, and that is a great point about knowing the difference between having a few drinks now and then and when it's time to seek additional help. Let's shift gears into something that was big in the news, and that is that the federal health authorities recommended that providers temporarily stop administering the Johnson & Johnson vaccine while they investigated a potential link to rare blood clots. While Johnson & Johnson is back in the mix, Let's go back to that time. So at the time that this vaccine was paused, what were the causes and what do we need to know? Well, this is, so this is actually um, something that needs to be viewed about how the healthcare system and in particularly the CDC in conjunction with the FDA are working to make sure that there is a lot of safety around the vaccines. So a report of a total of six cases of a rare thrombotic event called cerebral venous thrombosis um, associated with low platelets have been reported in individuals, all women between the ages of 18 to 48, in the period following their vaccinations, um, after they have been fully vaccinated. And the concern of these six events is, do we have a situation where the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is causing these very rare events to occur at a higher rate. Think about the fact that it's still occurring about one in a million, actually slightly lower than one in a million, given the fact that there have been about seven million doses of Johnson & Johnson and only six of these cases reported. These are medical conditions that do occur at a very low rate um, in the order of approximately um, one in about 100,000 or so. Um, so really not a very frequent uh, phenomena for women um, or for men, but we don't know if there is indeed an increased risk, so they are taking a look. And the safe way to do that is to temporarily halt giving any more vaccines to anybody until we understand whether there really is a link and we're seeing this occurring at a higher rate or 
if this is indeed occurring at a rate that would previously be expected to occur. And that's that's the safety mechanism that needs to be understood. There hasn't yet been an established link. There hasn't been a causality, meaning we haven't said that because this vaccine does this, this event is occurring, but we're simply taking that information, investigating further, and because of the seriousness of these potential events, the safest way to proceed is to take a temporary halt until we understand better before we release that vaccine once again. And Dr. Clone, if you were someone who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, is this something to be nervous about? Right now, there isn't. Uh, I've actually had uh, my brother who had um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, and my advice to him was the same that I would have anybody uh, anybody else. There's, there's nothing that you have to do at this point. But if you have anything that is out of the ordinary, if you get a headache, that would normally be there. If you have neurologic symptoms, that wouldn't normally be there. If you have swelling, uh, that wouldn't be um, expected to be occurring because it's not secondary to an injury, et cetera, then it needs to be investigated. And that would be the same advice that I would be giving to anybody else who may have had that vaccine right now. There is nothing different than they should be undertaking. You mentioned the negative data regarding the Johnson & Johnson vaccine being such a small percentage. As of today, 5,800 fully vaccinated people had caught COVID anyway in the U.S. While this is a small percentage of the overall number of people vaccinated, what can you tell us about this? Actually, this is great news, uh, and, and people don't realize this. So when the vaccines first came out, and we talked about the Pfizer and the Moderna, we're talking about an efficacy in the order of 95%. That's what was quoted. If you run the numbers of where we are today, the actual efficacy is greater than 99.9%. So no one has ever claimed vaccines are 100% effective. But a vaccine that is 99.9% .9 effective is pretty darn good and something we do not see very often in medical care. So this is evidence that the vaccines are doing exactly what we expected the vaccines to be doing. Yes, I think this is, again, a case of how headlines can sometimes be misleading. Now, of that 5,800, do we know at what point in their vaccination journey, let's call it, that they contracted COVID? For example, could they have been vaccinated on a Monday and caught COVID on a Tuesday? Absolutely. And those are the things that we do not fully understand. Here's the other tricky part. 23%, um, I believe, of those individuals had asymptomatic infection, which begs the question, did they have a previous infection that was present before they even got vaccinated? And all we are detecting is that leftover RNA that we are seeing in patients months after their infection, which would actually make the rate even lower. And those are the questions that we do not yet understand exactly when people became infected, if they're asymptomatic, um, at what time in their journey of the vaccine, as you uh, mentioned, they actually contracted the infection. But when we've looked at fully vaccinated individuals, that is two weeks or later, the number continues to be uh, showing a greater than 99% protection. So we know that this is a vaccine that is working at least as well, if not better than advertised. 
Dr. Cologne, you and I have talked about this before, but with millions of Americans being vaccinated, COVID cases are still on the rise. What are your thoughts on the reasons we're still seeing cases and hospitalizations going up? Yeah, so so the numbers actually going um, up in some place in, in in some locations um, and in most of the pockets are having to do with our continued um, lack of perfect adherence to our mask wearing and social distancing. Um, it it is continuing to occur that we are loosening up a little too much, some over-reliance in the protection of um, the vaccines for some individuals where people believe that as soon as they're vaccinated, they're good to go. And some of the timing, we're, we're you know, through the spring break and uh, Easter holiday break for a lot of people, which are times of gatherings, a lot of traveling, um, a lot of uh, social activities, and those are prime situations for us to get into increased transmissibility uh, of this virus. My follow-up question to this was going to be, what should we be doing to help with these number increases? But you pretty much answered that. And it sounds like we should just be doing the same things that we were told at the beginning of the pandemic. It is. It is just continuing to emphasize what we have been talking about from the very beginning. It's not a time to be letting up. It's actually right now the time to double down to get the vaccines, make sure that we are um, adhering to all of those protective measures that the sooner we get the numbers down, the sooner we're going to be able to get back to loosening up those restrictions and getting back to life as normal. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, what Dr. Cologne is seeing on the front lines and, of course, more talk about the vaccine. Stay with us. We know getting care comes with a little uncertainty right now. But behind these masks, you'll find unwavering dedication, compassion, and protection for you and the care we provide to you. You won't find us backing down. We won't stop. As long as you need us, we'll be here standing strong. Because it's who we are, and care is behind everything we do. Our care lives here. Premier Health. And we're back. Data is showing that a third dose of the vaccine is likely needed within a year for Pfizer and Moderna's vaccines. What can you tell us about this? And I think it's still a little too early to know. Um, I think the, the, the data that's come out from the companies suggesting that um, is something that's going to be looked at to see how that information was ascertained and um, it'll probably be taken into consideration into the vaccination guidelines um, before that really uh, gets determined. So I don't know that we know that for sure. I think that there are some suggestions of that. Those are questions that have been asked for a very long time. Until we fully understand the duration of our antibody protection, we're not going to um, be able to make that determination. And if you look at how the data has come out for vaccines, every couple of months, we we extend how long the vaccine immunity appears to be uh, lasting. Early on, we knew that it was three months, but we didn't know beyond that. Um, just recently, we learned that it was actually at least six months that we have good protection from the vaccinations, but we don't know beyond that. And that's because every few months, we get more of the data from the people that were vaccinated before to really understand how long that immunity lasts. Um, so I think by summer, we'll probably have a better idea 
of whether that is indeed going to be necessary or not. And Dr. Clone, this might be a silly question, but for those of us without a medical background, will this annual vaccine and or boosters be something that we have to do indefinitely? You know, that is not a silly question at all. And it is a question that a lot of people are asking in scientific areas and in the healthcare community. And unfortunately, the answer is we don't know yet. We don't know if this is going to become a yearly vaccine like influenza. Um, we don't know if we are going to have to make significant modifications to that as we do with influenza every year. And a lot of it is going to depend on how long our immunity lasts, but also what COVID does. Is COVID going to become a virus that becomes endemic and problematic, or will it become like a lot of the other nuisance um, seasonal viruses like our common strain coronavirus like that gives us a common cold, which doesn't have the same rates of complications. And, and we don't yet fully understand that. Um, so that is a to be determined. Some women are questioning whether the vaccine affects their menstrual cycle. Is this a potential side effect for women? You know, it, it's interesting because I've seen that anecdotal, uh, those anecdotal reports, and there's there's no established link and um, really no proposed mechanism for how that, that could be occurring. So that becomes a bit of a conundrum to see how those are linked. It had not been reported as, an, as a vaccine um, side effect that was previously noted. So thus far, we, we don't know that there is a link. We don't have enough reports to really be able to establish that in there. Uh, but I think there is data that's being followed to see if there is indeed a concern. There are a ton of reasons why menstrual cycles could suddenly develop some irregularity for women that have nothing to do with vaccinations. So we need to see, are the rates of irregularity more common in people who are receiving vaccines, or is it just coincidental? Uh, and and that's, that's where the data really comes in to be able to show us, is there a higher rate or not? For some time now, Americans have been looking forward to herd immunity, but with over a quarter of Americans saying they will not get vaccinated, is herd immunity an attainable goal? Possibly. Uh, and the reason I say possibly is because if, if, we, if we got to 75% of the population that was vaccinated, but there was another percentage that were able to get immunity through infection, we may actually have sufficient immunity within uh, the population to actually be able to protect everybody. And that's what herd immunity does. Herd immunity is not just protecting the people who are vaccinated. It is protecting those who are not able to get the vaccine or have immunity in any other way by virtue of the majority of the population being immune to a virus. And a lot of those numbers are, are anecdotal numbers that are formulated in hypotheticals. So we don't, we don't know what the exact number really is. And Dr. Colon, is there anything else you're seeing on the front lines that you'd like to share? Um, I think what we're seeing that's a bit different is despite the numbers going up, we're, we're not seeing the overwhelming number of life-threatening illnesses that we had been seeing um, during the, the previous peak over the winter. So this is associated um, so far with more of the community cases, again, younger individuals um, and mostly unvaccinated people. So I think people need to understand that this is not a situation of failed vaccination. 
but it's it's failed containment from not doing the right things. And as always, what is one last takeaway that you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would want everybody to understand we are not through this yet. We still have a significant ways to go. But if we do the right things, if we all get vaccinated when our time comes up, if we continue to stick with the mask wearing and the social distancing, we are going to be able to move up the timeline um, and help the process go faster and more smooth. Thank you so much, Dr. Colon. Thank you. So after thinking about some of the best things that you've done during quarantine, which of those are things that you'll take with you when we do return to normal? And something even better to think about, what are the best things you plan to do when we're out of this pandemic? You can get more information 24-7 at premierhealth.com COVID-19. And we want you to get the information you need about COVID-19 vaccines from people you can trust. Visit our COVID-19 vaccine hub for up-to-date interviews with our physician leaders, fact sheets, news, and more about COVID-19 vaccines at premierhealth.com vaccine. This has been Premier Health Now On Air, COVID-19 edition, a Premier Health podcast. Our care lives here.